everybody. It's Orlando Bailey with Authentically Detroit. Listen, Donna and I had the opportunity to go to the Detroit Regional Chamber's Mackinac Policy Conference last week, and we conducted a series of interviews that you are getting ready to hear. Let me introduce you to Dr. Andre Perry. He's an author and researcher at the Brookings Institute. We also talked to Angelique Power, who is the new CEO at Skillman Foundation, and we talked to our old friend who was introduced to us by Marlo Stoudemire, actually, Dewan Dandris, who is now the CEO of Black Leaders Detroit. We want you to listen, like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. We hope you enjoy these interviews. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to a very special episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Mackinac Policy Conference on the beautiful Mackinac Island, powered by the Eastside Community Network in partnership with WDET and sponsored by the Ford Foundation, now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms we drop a new episode every week so be sure to turn on those notifications Joining us today is Dr. Andre Perry. Andre is a senior fellow with the Brookings Institution. He is the author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities, available wherever books are sold. My friend, my brother, Dr. Andre Perry, welcome to Authentically Detroit. You got to say wherever fine books are sold. I'm sorry, wherever fine books are sold. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) <laughs> Yo, be sure to go get that book. You might see a familiar name in there um, if you if you read uh, Know Your Price. You might see somebody you know. In oh, there. yeah, and the acknowledgments. Make sure you check that out. A lot of familiar. Check out the acknowledgments, Detroit. You may see some familiar names in there. Andre, I can't believe this is the first time we're having you on the podcast. It's been a long time coming. Welcome, man. Hey, it's my pleasure. You know, I, I see things are working over on that east side, doing, doing good things. <laughs> and so it's just a, a pleasure to be a part of this uh, phenomenal pod. And so let's get it. Yeah, yeah, as we converge on Mackinac Island, who would have thought this would be the place where we finally get to have you on the podcast lots on of the things, beautiful Mackinac Island? It's, lots of things happen in, uh, in Mackinac, right? Ugh. It's just hard for me to believe. I would have sworn that we had you on the podcast in the it's, past. It's shocking to <laughs> it's me. Shocking. As much as we've talked about your book and as much as we've talked about your scholarship and how you've advanced understanding, um, I didn't have a chance to see your session this morning, but it was amazing. <gasps> What? Yeah. She saw it virtually. I saw virtually okay. pieces of it. I have to. T- I had to teach a class last night. Uh, and because, you know, she's a professor at Columbia University. Did you know that, Andre? Oh, I had no idea. She teaches at Columbia. Tell them about your <laughs> class and what you teach, Donna Givens. Um, it's in the School of Professional Studies Sustainability Management Program. And I teach a class on um, the um, building resilience in 21st century Detroit. And I take people through 20th century Detroit. Actually, now we started at the tail end of the 19th century until now to help students understand the um, roots and remedies to racial injustice and to connect that to sustainability. Oh, wow. And as a a former academic, I certainly appreciate uh, the work that professors do. Well, I guess I'm still an academic. You still I work are at, an at academic. A, at a, That's what I was getting ready to a, say. A, but as a former professor, um, but um, congratulations on that. Thank uh, you. You, you got to be a special guest speaker. 
What's that? You oh, go yeah. Um, can I can I get you to commit to speaking in my on class? the air? We're asking you. All right, I am so no, excited. No, I will not. <laughs> All right. I will All not. right. I have been publicly rejected. Oh, I don't even know how to handle yeah. this. Yeah. No, I'm really excited about this. I think that um, what you bring is so important, and something that you talked about today really triggered um, my thoughts when you were talking. Can about Can I set it up really quick before yes, you ask your question? So absolutely. Here at the Mackinac Policy Conference, there are many different sessions, and Andre Perry participated uh, in a panel discussion. Uh, first thing uh, uh, was this Tuesday morning talking about poverty to prosperity, building equity into Michigan's economic future. The panel was uh, moderated by Kim Trent and his co-panelists were Anika Goss and Derek Hamilton. And it was a spirited and lively discussion uh, about many things, especially when we talk about this moral ethical economy. That That's a term that I haven't uh, really heard before this morning, so I'm taking that with me. But Donna, I wanted to tee you up for your first question. Yeah, I was just really struck by it because um, when you talked about the fact and the truth that um, economic prosperity can happen in the face of injustice, and in fact, it has happened in the face of injustice, that when you decide that you are going to exploit your way into prosperity, that is kind of the history of um, capitalism, to some extent. It's the history of imperialism. It is the history of slavery. Would you agree with that? I think that's the statement that you were making. Yeah, um, that there are many ways to, to get ec economic growth. And uh, one of the ways is, and, and certainly is to exploit people's labor. And we see, have seen that obviously in slavery. We see that in today's time in, in terms of people not getting the kind of wages they deserve. Mm -hmm. And and so that certainly can spur economic growth. It can be a manifestation of economic growth. But is that the kind of world we want to live in? So when we talk about the economy and economics and business development and all those different things, if we're not really talking about community, mm -hmm. then we're really not talking or, we, or, or we're talking about exploitation. And so for me, growth without shared prosperity is exploitation. It okay. is oppression. And so um, we shouldn't only talk about uh, um, um, dollars and cents. We should talk about community benefit mm -hmm. and, and, and shared prosperity and healthy lives and, and people. Um, so we can shape the, the, the economy any way we want. When we only talk in economic terms, um, we are essentially saying people don't matter. Mm. Well. And, and for me and Derek Hamilton, who is um, um, professor at the New School in New York City and a good friend and collaborator um, who really, really understands um, economic dynamics like very few people do. And so uh, go check him out and go check out that session. But um, that's the conversation we had. We do not want um, any conference on um, the economy uh, or, econ or policy conference to be absence of community. Mm. Well, um, and so that, that's what we really um, tried to drive home in our, in our session. And I really appreciated that um, statement. It's absolutely true. And I think a lot of times people pretend like you can't, you, like they go hand in hand and they don't have to. Although I will say that I attended another um, session this afternoon on economic prosperity following COVID-19. And you had a few business um, 
people standing up and saying, we can't find workers. We've had schools shut down because they can't find workers. We've had restaurants, um, drive through restaurants, having signs in the window saying, we don't have workers. And to some extent, um, what we may be seeing, I think, is the limits of being able to exploit workers, um, especially in the face of a pandemic, people saying, I'm not coming back to work for you. Do you think that that is a sustainable kind of thing and that we're looking at possible restructuring of our workforce? Or is this just a temporary after effect of COVID-19? Well, there's um, a lot of reasons why people say um, we don't have workers. But another way of saying that is to say we don't pay people a lot of money because right. <laughs> as soon as you increase pay guess what you're going to f- well, find workers and so people in this economy particularly with the amount of stimulus that really provided a living wage really mm-hmm. when people were not getting it That's so right. a lot of people are si- essentially sitting out to until and they and and workers have greater leverage now mm-hmm. so if you don't offer the kind of benefits the kind of services the the, the kind of pay um, the, the conditions that someone else can offer, they're not going to come work for you. So um, when people say that, they're, it, it, it's really short on a lot of other areas um, that um, a lot of employers aren't, don't have this problem. Yeah. It's, the, it's the, the employers who, who want to hire people at the same wages that existed before the right. well, but Which, you know, we don't have this problem at ECN, right? Right. <laughs> but um, we 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 are, we're fully employed. I mean, we have a couple of positions that are opening because of our growth. Yeah. But we don't have the issue of being unable to keep employees because employees find value there. On the other hand, yeah. as a nonprofit leader, I've never tried to exploit the workforce. And Orlando, please um, back me up. I don't try to <laughs> exploit the workforce, uh. right? I try to always think through what workers need. I think, um, honestly, I worked there for four years and promoted people and gave people raises and did not receive a single raise myself until four years after I started working there because I wanted to make sure that I was able to retain people. And so that thinking is a different type of thinking that a lot of times that you see in the business sector. However, I'll say that a lot of these shortages predated the pandemic. Teacher shortages are not new. They've been going on in Michigan schools, and you're having fewer people going to teacher college. You have a declining birth rate in the United States, and a lot of people are aging out of the employability age. And so how do we rebuild the workforce in some instances is significant. What I was hearing right last year from Henry Ford say is that the worker shortages in the healthcare sector predated it. And so yeah. to me, yes, the unemployment helped to sustain things, and I think it's going to change a little bit. But unemployment's been gone since September 4th, and some places are still finding worker shortages. Now, some people have died. Some people are still ill. Um, gig economy. The gig economy has absorbed some of the potential workers. But it just made me realize that there are limits to this concept that we can exploit our way into economic prosperity. Well, and, and I'm, I'm going to give another interpretation of this. Um, uh, we can't find workers. It's also, uh, um, it could be said that we don't want to invest in developing new workers, mm. a new class of workers. Because uh, um, o- over the last 20, 30 years, we've seen somewhat of an abdication of, 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 from employers to develop um, employees. Uh, you hear all the time uh, people say, if, if we could only fix the schools, uh, we could find workers. Well, Remember, it wasn't that long ago where employers saw themselves as part of the educational trajectory, where they took in students, trained them, taught them the the ropes. 
provide them soft and hard skills. And we're in this place now in the economy, we're going to have to return to that, where, where empo- employers really take responsibility in building capacity of workers. So um, to say that we can't find them is it, somewhat of an excuse for other issues. Can you talk about uh, stimulus being a viable economic tool to spur growth, um, especially out of poverty. You guys were talking about poverty to prosperity. And one of the things that is occurring to me is that when people receive uh, stimuluses uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic that was of great help to them, there's no way that they would want to go back to a job that undervalues them by the wage that they are paying that perpetuates cyclical poverty right so how can we leverage this you know stimulus to invest in what you said earlier people before places yeah you know um one of the thing one of the questions i receive um, on the panel is how can um, we essentially um, improve conditions on the ground and i, I laid out three basic things and then um, went into depth the, the first is we have to invest in people, direct capital to people, cut the check um, <laughs> for educational services, training, business services, home um, to purchase homes, to start businesses. We got to invest in, in, in people first. Uh, uh, if you, uh, the second a- area is often what we do. We invest in place, in brick and mortar, in, com- in communities. If you invest in place and not people or above people, you essentially uh, raise property values and people can't keep pace and then they are pushed out. Mm-hmm. And so you have to invest in people first. And but you you do need to invest in place because mm-hmm. um, of housing devaluation, of, of um, a lack of overall investment. Um, you see many places without the the proper infrastructure with that the, the, we can't beautify. We can't do all the things. Um, in the neighbors. So you still have to invest in, in place. But always remember, you got to find ways to invest in people. The third thing is that we must divest from racism, that we must remove <laughs> the practices and policies that extract wealth from people every single day. I mean, the the tax assessment issue in, in, in Detroit, Detroit yeah. is, is, a, is a prime example of how we literally taking money out of people's pockets that could have been used for educational services, for other issues, to go put back into their homes um, um, and other areas. And so um, those are the the three major areas, but we we really do need to commit to um, changing the economy in, in, in a manner that uplifts real, the values we uphold. If we're saying we're about community. That's what we say. If we say that, then put your money where your mouth is and develop community. You know, one thing I learned in in um, education, I was a longtime educator, um, uh, worked on educational issues, ran schools in New Orleans. And I used to hear this uh, uh, statement all the time. People would, would say, what's the fastest way to close the achievement gap, the black-white achievement gap? Um, and they were so focused on this number. I said, well, the actual, the fastest way is to stop educating white people. That's the fastest way to close <laughs> the black-white achievement gap. But we will never do that, right? Because of that's wrong, right? <laughs> that's wrong. 
But we have done in education equally nefarious things. We've fired teachers. We've um, expelled students. We've done all kind of bad things in the name of closing the achievement gap. The, the issue is never can we close the gap. It's how do we, how do, we do it. it. It's, a moral, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moral ethical uh, issue. How do we close? How do we improve? And so and when we're talking about improving the workforce, are we willing to invest in people and stop saying things like, uh, you know, we can't find the workers? Now, there are some real forces. I just want to be clear. Automation is real. Yeah. Automation. But we actually should be taking advantage of, of automation. We should be investing in humanness right. um, instead of actually um, asking people to do rote things that we can get well, a machine to let do. Me, well, let me jump in and it. ask this question because you talk about divesting in racism, right? Yeah. And for me, you know, in, in America, racism is institutional. So, like, w number one, where is, where is the policy audit that we, you know, sort of take with a fine-tooth comb and say this needs to change, this needs to change? But on the flip side, you're talking about building a moral economy. How do we appeal legislatively to the moral compass of the folks that we elect to can say I, this is <laughs> can i jump in here because yeah. i think we keep on wanting to appeal to people's moral compass and um i think that you guys perhaps are much more optimistic about the moral compass <laughs> of yeah. american people right i think that we can embrace i mean we see a police officer kill somebody and we will acquit them i think that we've seen injustice happen time and time again people drive through a neighborhood which is clearly um you know just disinvested and there's this mindset of, well, these people need to do a better job or whatever. So somehow our moral compass is not triggered. But one of the things in my class that I'm trying to help students understand is the, um, the, 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 the self-interest in reducing racism. That while you might be able to reach economic prosperity through exploitation and certainly through racial exploitation, racialized violence and all of this kind of stuff, the ultimate impact is you are making the world unsustainable for you. Yeah. One out of three Americans experienced a climate crisis event this year, and it's only going to get worse. We had flooding in New York caused by a hurricane in New Orleans, 17 inches of rain in Tennessee. We had people who were literally burning or dying of heat stroke in Seattle and forest mm. fires mm. in mm. California. And all of these things are based on um, us misusing not just people, but also the environment. And a lot of times what happens is that environmental injustice or environmental destruction happens in places where black and brown bodies, black and brown people live, and they don't have the power really to fight back. Well, you, you mentioned a word that is critical in this conversation is power. The, um, I agree. We, you know, what I try to do with my research and, and writings, I certainly try to make a head case when you're talking about the economy and the potential benefits of equity, I always point out, hey, you know, the black population represent, is about, uh, black people represent about 14% of the population, but only 2% of employer firms. If the, uh, the percentage of employer firms matched the, the mm -hmm. black population, we would add 800,000 more uh, jobs or uh, uh, businesses to the economy. 800,000, trillions of dollars added to the economy. And I, I can't cite the numbers right offhand on Detroit. Same thing in Detroit Metro. Now, um, you, so you make a head case with those kind of numbers. Sometimes that doesn't work. 
I also try to make a heart case. I say, hey, actually people are dying. People are, 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 are um, losing their homes. They're, they, they're living a, a, a bad quality of life. And we show that, we, we qualify all those mm -hmm. things. And sometimes that doesn't work, right? The other piece to this, we have, if you can't make a head case, you can't make a heart case, this then becomes about power and mobilizing. When people hit the streets in the summer of 2020, we saw change. Yeah. We saw change. So I'm also, you know, clear, absolutely clear that we make the head case. We make the heart case. But at some point, we mobilize people because there are folks who simply don't have that moral compass. We have leaders, obviously. We had a president who could not spell good. Um, <laughs> couldn't, I mean, could not, I mean, really could not, there, there was no compass. There was no real sense of right and wrong. And so the only way you beat that is to outpower it to overpower it, to change it. And, you know, in a democracy, that's called voting. That's called organizing. organizing. Yeah. It's all those different things. And sometimes that just has to be a part of it. But there is no question people are willing to cut their nose to spite their face every single day in this. That means the temperatures are rising. We're seeing flooding. We're in, in New Orleans. You, you, you see um, uh, hurricanes every single year now. Um, it's, it's, then on top of that, you have all kinds of um, other economic issues. People don't care. And so then it becomes, are we willing to organize, right, mobilize? And, 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 and coalition change? building, right? And coalition building. Because, for example, I'll give an example. Across so one example the country. Today, coalition yep. building. So today, we heard um, a great presentation from the mayor of Detroit talking about all of the things that are happening. And one of the things he mentioned is the expansion of the Stellantis plant, formerly Fiat Chrysler. And in talking about that plant, one of the things he talked about was the jobs. And we always talk about jobs. In fact, anytime you want to do harm to the environment, all you have to do is mention jobs and people say, okay, cool, right? And so even as he was talking about that today, um, the Detroit News reported, and I saw a report from the State Environmental Office Eagle pointing out that there are fumes inside of the neighborhood directly behind this plant that are detectable and that are in violation of the state permit. Mm -hmm. Okay, and all of that was understandable. We understand that you're supposed to have a b buffer between the um, industrial operations and also where people live. Residential, there should be a yeah, buffer, right. and we actually removed a buffer, a green buffer, and a replaced it with the wall, we and gave the, the green buffer to the plant so they could expand a in the lot. name of jobs at a parking lot. And so now people are more exposed to lot. environmental damage. Now, lot. on the one hand. That's very harmful, and it's, um, you know, it's racist, to be honest with you. Anytime you can increase pollution, and the way they got away with it is they said, we'll decrease pollution in, the in a neighboring suburb, suburb. So they decrease, they offset the increase in pollution in, in Detroit Michigan. by promising to decrease it by 30% and actually bragged about in the paper today. It's really great to me. And, um, anyway, <laughs> but here's the part I want to get at. Air moves, okay? You don't just poison the air on yeah. Beneteau. 
just down the street, you have all of the gross points. And you know what? They care too. They're saying, wait a minute, we don't want to breathe that nasty air. Or the wellness and hub. The well- <laughs> well, we have wellness <laughs> hub right there. But they, nobody wants to breathe the nasty air. So the issue is, how, does, how do Detroiters build coalition with gross pointers so that we can understand that yeah. there is one air, one earth, one that water. We are all connected. And that's shared interest. We don't always make the connection so that people can understand the economic impact of what they do. Um, if you exploit workers, if you keep on attacking teachers, people will stop going into the teaching profession, and that's going to impact you eventually because yeah. your child will not have teachers. We're not doing a great job of, I think, connecting dots and helping people understand. And I always use this um, analogy, Game of Thrones, and I don't know if you watched it, but if you didn't, it's about all of these kingdoms that are fighting. And while the kingdoms are fighting and trying to establish power every single season, they say winter is winter coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Winter is something that nobody really understands, but it's something that everybody is terrified. And in the last season, one of the guys who is an anti-hero says, comes, or a hero says, you know what? We need to stop fighting each other and fight winter because if winter comes, we're all dead. And that's what I say about the climate sustainability. If we get to the point where we look at the economics of our region, if we look at everything that we do as contributing either to a sustainable future for us all or destruction of many, um, we're going to possibly get to a better place faster. Do you think that argument makes any sense? And can you integrate that or reflect on that? The only thing I, I really will add is, we talk a lot about self-interest, obviously, in politics, and that's something we must live with. However, there's a difference between uh, being self-interested and being self-absorbed. When you're self-absorbed, you don't look to tomorrow. You don't make the connections. And people are so self-absorbed, I mean, really self-absorbed, that their self-interest becomes um, a danger to us all and so especially those who are in power exactly and so Mm -hmm. and and that's somewhat a a a statement about the body politic right now absolutely Uh, we we have people who really think we are not connected that that if i hurt if if i get something then it's a hurt to me or to somebody else that if i give a black person uh, resources you're taking away from white people and I, and I'm always saying look understand that there is no way we can live in our communities um, and and this is especially true in the pan, uh, in pandemic when we know if our neighbor or uh, if our neighbors are sick we are now vulnerable we have got to invest in the, in in people who don't have the resources to 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 survive that vulnerability in medically is also true economically the house will fall down right. if we have two the, these raging um, wealth divides that's really crippling um, the economy it's making turning us into enemies um, out of uh, each other it is we're in a bad place um, however um, when we get to conferences like this, we, we do a lot of cheerleading, which is important to extent. But there needs to be a lot of healing going on in these conferences. You know, uh, and this is the one thing, you know, I, and I won't mm-hmm. name any names, or 
Name them. Well, uh, yeah, nah, because ahead. that would defeat the purpose. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. it's it's good because when you're in economic development or um, um, conversations, it's all about look what we di- well look what we did, look what we did. Yes. And it's like, let's talk about the healing that is absolutely necessary. We can't be that daggone cohesive as a state. You just had a group that's busted for trying to. Uh, 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 Hide, hide, steal a governor. All right, yeah. <laughs> you know, kidnap like, a governor. Yes. Kidnap a governor. I mean, I don't know how, I mean, it can get worse, actually. And so let's un- also unpack the need for healing in a time and truth telling. Um, and that's another thing that we, we did on the panel. We really talked about um, reparations, and part of it is about acknowledging the wrong and harm and when you do that it's easier to then restore and repair that harm and so they're just you know i love coming to conferences but i also just want to have real dialogue real conversation that will lead to healing if we don't have that uh you know we're going to always be self absorb and self-interested and go down this wrong i have long believed we need a race and reconciliation commission in detroit right? In the city of Detroit, in every community, we can talk about the property tax injustice, and we talk about it like it's a thing without looking at all of the pain that resulted, generational loss, and then we say, let's move on. And this is what we do. And you can't just move on. There's brokenness here. You can't have emergency management and just move on. You cannot have the kinds of um, things that are happening in terms of water shutoffs and just move on. And you certainly cannot poison a neighborhood with um, the plant right. emitting these odors. Now, maybe you didn't think it would. Maybe you thought that you had it figured out with your new technology, and this is all a surprise to everybody. But you know what you never see? You never see an apology. You never see, let's figure out how to make it right. Instead, it's, oh, my bad. I didn't know what's happened. Let's move on. And that's the kind of thing that always happens with poor people. Now, the interesting thing in Detroit is the flooding, because this past June, Detroit did not flood as badly in many areas as the Gross Points did. Mm-hmm. And when the Gross Points flooded like that, they demanded answers. Nobody's moving on. They've hired the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District, Jeff Collins, to investigate what went wrong in the fl- flooding. The head of the Great Lakes Water Authority stepped down because of pressure. Lawsuits are pending. We're not just moving on. And again, that's where that coalition comes in. But I think that you're right about healing. I think healing demands accountability. It sometimes just demands an ap- apology. Oh, yeah, yeah. And a willingness to hear from people, how can I make this right? I'm interested in understanding how your work can be used and how you can be deployed, because I know you're working in Detroit, right? Yeah, with yeah, yeah. Detroit well, Future Cities to assist yeah. with that. All right, last, well, this is the last question. We got to go. Yeah, you know, you know what I always try to do, one, I personally apologize for things all the time. You know, I say <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You, you, I mean, and in, in, in for all the men out there listening, it's okay to say, you know, I was wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> You'd be surprised how much movement you get when you say those words. Because when you do, there's an acknowledgement, okay, now we can actually work together. Yes. And, and sometimes I'm like, somebody just needs to say, you know what, that was my fault. How can I fix this? How can I um, be held accountable? How can we move forward together? And I, what I want to do in Detroit, certainly 
um, we're um, we're doing a lot um, in my book. I have a chapter called "Buy Back the Buy, Buy Back the Block," and we we want to do more of that work in Detroit, where we um, literally have folks buy back the block and and have people um, and business owners um, and place their businesses in these areas, um, not just uh, neighborhood facing businesses, but also um, uh, regional bi- businesses as well. Um, but I also want a, a space for healing, you know, yeah. th- that we just don't want insurance companies mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, office buildings and yeah. things like that. You're taking you know, a lashing, man. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. So w- what's the space where where we can come together? Where's the the areas that we can just sit down and talk? And where are the pod, podcast stations uh, <laughs> where we can hash it up? I mean, we really do need to. When we talk about design and planning, yes, we need to design for a better community, literally. And that includes narrative. That's, it, that's exactly it right. It includes narrative. So, that's, that's what we're going to work on it, um, in Detroit. And, um, but, hey, every time I come to, to Detroit, I, I'll be honest with you, um, and to Michigan, um, because the Detroiters are wherever I am in, in Michigan, there's always some healing for me. Like, I feel good. My spirit is lifted. And, you know, I, I talk a lot of hard truths, but I leave smiling every time mm. I, I talk to folks in, from Detroit. So I just want to continue that same vibe, at, but do it at a scale where neighborhoods um, of varying types are smiling, speaking the hard truth, but going, you know what? I feel better about it. We've got to bring you east side. <laughs> Andre Perry, senior fellow with the Brookings Institution, the author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities, available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> Andre Perry, thank you so much for coming on Authentically hey, Detroit. Thank you for having me. <laughs> See you next time. All right, joining us on Authentically Detroit today is Dwan Dandridge. Dwan is the president and CEO of Black Leaders Detroit. Dwan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure to be on here hanging out with y'all. I'm surprised you like you're not wobbling around Mackinac right now. Didn't you ride a bike from Detroit to Mackinac Island? Look, you from Detroit, you know brothers from Detroit have to step a certain type of way no matter what type of pain we in we have to play it off my, my walk has to look um a certain type of way i can't be walking around limping so you hurt is what you're saying <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm still a little bit sore but it's getting better it's getting better I, I the last day of the ride was actually saturday so um i'm feeling a little bit better i'm recovering yeah you are uh, um notorious though you know i was telling you earlier i was riding in my cab and they were like there's this man who rode his bike 370 miles. And I said, Don, Dwan Dandridge, that's the man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's cool. It's like uh, one of the things that, that happened, I think we were leaving Petoskey and riding through kind of downtown Petoskey. And some of the, the um, you know, the, 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 the media outlets up, up north kind of took, came out and captured the story. And we was riding past, and they were having, like, an Alzheimer's walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, like, you know, an all-white community. Um, and this lady saw us riding and saw our, t- our, our, our van and was like, hey, I saw you on the news yesterday. That's a great thing that you're doing. God bless you. <laughs> so it, it felt good to see, like, the coverage and, and, and be acknowledged by people. And 
quite frankly, you need every little ounce of motivation you can get when you Legit. get to the end of that okay. ride. Okay, I, I bet you do. Yeah. Remind our uh, listeners about what Black Leaders Detroit is and what it does. We had you on the podcast a while ago with Marlo Stoudemire, and I think we were probably one of the first interviews that you were doing. You were still full-time at another organization right. before you made the leap, and now look at where it is, but, you know, t- remind our folks what it is. Yeah, so definitely. Um, I think we were, we were more than an idea. We were an actual organization, but we hadn't done anything yet. So um, what Black Leaders Detroit is, I, I describe us as a funding vehicle for black entrepreneurs. Uh, we create access to capital um, for for-profit. We're, our, our, our goal is to do a no-interest loan uh, for the for-profit sector and grants for the uh, nonprofit space. Um, but we've been doing grants since last April for for-profit and non-profits alike, and we'll continue to do that um, until the end of this year. And in January, we're going to actually launch our No Interest Loan product for the for-profit side. Well, that's, that's amazing. amazing. That's amazing. So on, we had our extravaganza on Friday, Eastside Extravaganza, and I had the opportunity to award the Best New Restaurant Award to Naya Marshall from Ivy Kitchen. Nice. And um, you remember how I met Naya? I remember how you met Naya. Uh, You want to talk about that? Yeah, so um, it was during one of our our grant cycles, and um, one of the things that really helped me get through the craziness of uh, 2020, uh, there were two things. One, my son, I mean, my grandson, Brayden, was born, right? But the other thing was being able to call some of the black entrepreneurs that were facing some really crazy times and tell them that we were going to be giving them a grant. Um, and as I was like ex- experiencing extreme joy in really crazy times, it dawned on me that I should be, be sharing that joy with other people. And I wanted, I was thinking about some of the people that signed up really quickly and believed in our mission um, and started to donate $52 a year, like Donna did right away. And you were one of the people Excuse that me, I called. Excuse me, Aunt Orlando. Aunt don't Orlando, just get, uh, Orlando I'm sitting def- right here. Orlando definitely, uh, look, any, anybody that's listening, if you ever come on the show or anywhere else, better make sure you give Orlando a shout out. But no, I don't need <laughs> a shout out, but I'm just No, but, but, but Orlando, not only did, did, you, did you, you sign up to donate, you did a promo video for us. I sure did. Uh, I when, when nobody had heard of us. So, like, like it's, it's all love when, when I come here to Authentically Detroit. Um, but... Sharing that experience is, is something that I wanted our, our donors to, to experience, right? It's like you have big foundations uh, give money. They go out and they do photo ops. And um, I know that anybody that signed up to donate at Black Leaders Detroit, they're doing it from the heart, and they're not doing it for publicity. So I wanted Donna, to, as well as some others, to experience what it felt like to make that call to some of those business owners and say that you will be receiving a grant. So how did it feel, Donna? It was amazing. And, you know, I got to know her. She's an Eastside restaurateur. And, um, and, and let me tell you, during the event, she spoke. And it's, you know, recorded. If you go to our website, you can see the actual, um, you know, awarding of her um, her recognition, which was voted on not by me, but by Eastside Detroit residents. It is um, the most outstanding on the East Side Mo Better Award comes mm-hmm. from residents. It's not by us. And so through that gift, she was able to keep her doors open so that she could win that award. 
And she was such a sweet person. She invited us to dinner. She sat at our table and she was inviting everybody to come dinner. And I know I'll be there. But you and the work that you did was instrumental in keeping that restaurant open. And that's just the one I sat in on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? You're talking about her staying open, which means the people that's employed uh, by our business are still employed. And the people that have been there like receiving not not just the food but the hospitality that you experience when you go into ivy kitchen um like all of that staying in place right and that's because um we had a vision but not just the vision people like caught on to the vision i really don't feel like it's it's my idea or my vision i've heard my whole life in barbershops and at the dinner table i've heard us always say if we could just come together we would be all right Right. Like if we could just come together. So that's what we're trying to do at Black Lee Detroit, create a platform where we can all just come together. And if you have a dollar to spare a week, you can be a part of the membership um, that's trying to solve this problem with us. So, Dwan, Marlo Staudemeyer brought us together. Yep. And uh, the first time I met you, um, we were at the Durfee Innovation Society. And nope. I don't even know that I knew a black man worked for the. <laughs> what's, what's the name of the organization? Life Remodel. Life Remodel. I didn't know a black man worked at Life Remodel. Yep. And you know, you hear so many things about Life Remodel, quite honestly. Mm. And um, so we're at the table, and Marlo was trying to work with us to talk to the Michigan State Police, and we had the colonel there, and had a great conversation. But you kept it real all during the conversation, and never moved off of a very real conversation. And then after the fact. When the meeting was over, you brought up Black Leaders Detroit, and I was really, really excited, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was really shocking to me because mm-hmm. I did not understand that somebody would speak truth mm-hmm. to power and also work with Life Remodeled. You are kind of an interesting person in your path. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, to me, one of the reasons I went on staff at Life Remodeled was I really wanted to learn how some of the white-led organizations raised so much money and so much momentum <laughs> so quickly. Right. And I'd say I I couldn't have found a better place to land. Like Chris is like the Pied Piper at times when it comes to raising money in certain spaces. And I got a a great education. I feel like I had a lot to to, a lot to offer to the organization, especially where they were at the time, being able to help broker a deal and a relationship between the community and life remodeled um, um, when when they were going through like all the things at Durfee. Uh, Chris is like a good friend of mine over time. Like, like for me, I'm about working with whoever have their sleeves rolled up, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if you have your sleeves rolled up, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and I'm ready to work with you. I, I spent too much time in barbershops with us talking about all the things that were wrong that plagued our community. And I would ask questions and say, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? And then I'd hear nothing but clippers. Right. <laughs> so, so, you still so, go to barbershops? So, yeah. You know what? Yeah. I, I, Ooh, Donna, I, I still, so I, I just want to remind yeah, our yeah. listeners that Donna is so shady. Yeah. I because still. here Dewan is with a bald head asking <laughs> if he still goes to barbershops. Look, look I, I still have a full beard. It is very well groomed. It is very well groomed. Take it from me. That's the only beard. reason. Yes. And my, and I have, and I'm, and my hair still grows on some parts of my head. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh man! I want to I want to talk to you about the Mackinac experience, right? right. You know the the cause that you uh, you know are championing, right? The money that you were trying to raise with you know biking up here 
and uh, you know the the message that you want folks to walk away with concerning Black Leadership Detroit and Black entrepreneurship in Detroit. We're here on Mackinac Island, right? There are so many folks that we serve, that you serve, that don't have the opportunity to come to this kind of gathering and place where the mayor is your peer and you can walk right up to him, you can walk right up to the governor, you know, and experience this kind of access. How are you carrying, you know, the cause, the mission with having the opportunity and privilege to actually occupy space up here? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that Donna experienced, which she just described, and I hope that hopefully it means a lot to me. It, like if if y'all know that I, I represent like Detroit in whatever space I'm in, I'm going to always like be authentically myself right and authentically, authentically Detroit, Detroit. <laughs> all right all right um, ding ding but what I would say is you know the message that I, I, we really want to get out there what we want people to know about like the ride um, is that you know we are willing to do whatever it takes to solve this problem at Blackley's Detroit right like that's so the, the ride was symbolic of that it's going to be hard as hell like to really do what we're looking to do, but we're fully committed, like to, to that level. Um, I think one of the things that we 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 want to know, want people to know that our, our members of the chamber and that are here and their decision makers is that we know that the reason that we've been on the outside looking in has been intentional. There's systems, structures that are in place that have historically kept us out and currently keep us out, right? Um, but I also have talked to some of the people that are in leadership at some of those those organizations, institutions now, and I feel like there's a chance that they have different leadership, right, that may be serious about equity. And we want to extend an invitation to them um, to come and look at what we're doing, partner with us, um, submit to our leadership, <laughs> right, um, because... Obviously, if they, they knew how to solve it, either they didn't want to or they don't know how to, right? Like, we feel like we have part of the solution at Black Leaves Detroit. And, you know, things like the bike ride builds platform. And, you know, what's, what, what, is powerful. what, what yeah. will happen is we go from extending invitation to one day um, performing evaluation, yeah. right? So, like, we have lots of big announcements that happen. Um, from some of these big companies with billion-dollar announcements. And, you know, we're watching, um, we're asking questions, we're trying to look behind the curtain and see if there's a real wizard back there that's going to pull off um, whatever those announcements are. And if they're not, we're going to use our platform um, to really, you know, tell the truth about what's really going on. Yeah, so, I, Charlie, yeah. Charlie LaDuff... <laughs> Wrote, published in Deadline Detroit, reporters think they're equals with 1% at Mackinac, but they're really dancing circus dogs. Hmm. <laughs> well, you know, Char Charlie's brand of journalism. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 it, but, but, you know, you came up here and you're not dancing. You're no. definitely not a circus dog and you're not dancing. You actually have a different objective. And I wonder if Charlie sure. LaDuff is conscious of the other objective that you don't want these people to gather in secret and you're not here to witness and to challenge. So can you talk about maybe some of the conversations you may have had while you were up here with some folks to help them understand where you're coming from? And yeah. unpack that yeah. submit to black leadership comment you made in your last spiel. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah so, so, uh, Orlando, uh, if y'all hear if y'all hear Orlando say that, he already said he's gonna give me credit for it because he's uh <laughs> he's gonna jack it from me. But I mean, it's the truth, right? So, like, I want people to use it and and embrace it, right? It's like there's no shame in saying if you are an ally, right? Like ally by like definition is an uh, you, you i assume that you're not coming to run the show right i, I assume that you're coming to assist <laughs> right but too often when we have allies and we especially if they come from the white community white men in particular um they assume the position of head and leadership right and that's not what an ally de- n- normally does like you come in you commit make a commitment and then you look for instruction Right. And we should be in the seat of giving instructions. Right. Not um, like following somebody else's leadership on something that we've fully committed to. um, And we have the most to gain or lose. Right. So that's kind of like what I mean when I say submit like our allies should submit to black leadership. Yeah. Have you ever told them that? Well, have I ever told him that? Well, that, that, absolutely. That. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, there was a gathering uh, last night here on the island uh, that was curated by uh, Dewan um, and Black Leaders Detroit, Charity Dean and the Metro uh, Detroit Black Business Association and Camila Landrum from the NAACP Detroit chapter. And each of them had an opportunity at this gathering to address the crowd in this restaurant. And there were a lot of black folks and a few white folks um, who, uh, you know, we called allies. Um, and Dewan sort of, you know, had this this Frederick Douglass style of oratorical speaking when he, you know, he made them feel real comfortable. Give, give you know, give, give our white allies a hand for being here and being a part of conversations and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then in the same breath, he says to the white allies, I'm challenging you to submit to black leadership. You don't got to lead everything, right? We are, we, there are black leaders in this room that you need to submit to. And I was like, dang, did he really just yeah. <laughs> So, yes, he has yeah. said it. Uh, no. I, I, one of the things I said, I said, y'all go ahead and give him a hand because I'm <laughs> going to give them some instructions. <laughs> <laughs> and if y'all, if y'all saw the story that, um, Channel 7 did and Channel 2 ran on um, some friends of mine that were moving from Detroit uh, to Colorado. Yeah. It's a, uh, a white couple, the Armstrongs. And they were getting ready to sell their home in Boston Edison and move to Colorado, right? And they bought their home in, t- in 2012 from the land bank when the land bank was putting a bunch of money in homes in East English Village and uh, Boston Edison but selling them for a fraction of the cost. So they, were, they moved in from Ann Arbor to do a church plant um, at Wayne State. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were, you know, like, quite frankly, like, clueless as to what it meant to come into Detroit, hit a lick the way that they did in getting that house from the Detroit Land Bank and some of the, the ways that we are kind of, like, in the dark even about the opportunity. So um, they, they had learned a lot since their time being here from me and other friends and, and Detroiters that have wrapped their arms around them um, and kind of helped them navigate and, and learn what gentrification means, um, and what, it, what, what opportunity looks like uh, for white, peop- 
white Detroiters that are new to Detroit versus like Detroiters that are black and have been here for, for generations. And as they learned some of that, when they realized they were getting ready to sell their home and had this huge come up, they felt some sense of responsibility. And they, they, their, their thought was they were going to donate, the thought was that they were gonna donate some money to a white-founded organization and that, that, that does some amazing work. It wasn't mm-hmm. life or model for anybody that's wondering, but they were <laughs> going to donate money there and um, to, to help with the disparities. And when I heard that idea, um, I asked the husband, like, what kind of backwards thinking is that, right? It's like your, your, your answer to, like, how out of balance things are is to donate money to a white-founded organization. Like, that doesn't make sense. And he said, well, Dwan, when you explain it, it doesn't sound like such a great idea. Um, I said, well, yeah. Um, he, he asked me, he, he said that they would be open to suggestions. Mm. I shared with them in that, at that time, I'm, I would only process this with them if they were 100% sure that they were going to do something because there's too many emotions and pain tied into the subject matter for me to explore it. And they decide that it costs a lot of money to move to Colorado, so we can't do anything. So, long story short, uh, we met again. I told him about a pot that I was creating for black developers, exclusively at Black Leads Detroit. Um, and I talked about some of the black developers that are doing uh, development with social impact in the residential space. I said, I want to start that pot off with a $100,000 donation from them when they sell their home. And I thought that that was a reasonable ask based on the experience that they had with Detroit. And the, the, Kevin had asked me to mentor him some years back. Um, we, we, we share a Christian faith, so the term that he used was actually disciple him. And the reason he asked me to do that was because I asked him, is he, I asked him if he had ever served up under black leadership, and his answer was no. And I was like, how can you come work in a space like Detroit and expect to really see black people as your equal if you come in a shot caller, caller all the time? Right. Like you need to come in and submit to black leadership. So that wasn't the first time I used that last night. It won't be the last time. Like it's something I really believe in. And I don't think that it's even an insult. Right. I think it's an invitation. Right. To get in alignment with what is an effective strategy to really move the needle on equality, equity. Right. So I think that, you know, in order to submit to black leadership, you have to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. You have to really believe that the people you are submitting to have capacities that you don't, knowledge that you don't, values that you don't. And you also have to understand that people have the right to self-determination. And so you almost have to disciple some people to get them to the point where they are able to submit to your leadership, don't you? Agreed. Agreed. 100%. Right? So I think that as much as, you know, I issue challenge I issued the same type of challenge to myself, right? So, like, I, I'm patient with people that just don't know, right? So if people do things or operate out of ignorance and do something offensive, like, I don't believe in having a conversation with myself at night saying, man, I wish I would have said this or I say that. I address it in real time, right? So I always address it, but I have a practice that I call putting the perspective in the corner versus putting the person in the corner, right? Because if I put your perspective in the corner, you're less likely to have to feel like you have to defend it. If I say, hey, like this is what you said, this is what you did, and this is how, what I heard, and this is how it impacts me, then you can say, hey, that wasn't my intention. What? But, but if you say that that's exactly what I meant, then we're having a different conversation. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that, you know, like having some grace, some patience, 
um, but not like removing high expectation from our white allies or just our white peers in general, right? But I think that if we, if we want to lead, nobody wants to learn from a teacher that's just gonna badger you for, for what you don't know, what you haven't learned or your ignorances. But the teacher that's going to like lovingly correct you um, and give you the information, rehearse it with you, set you up in a, be- in a, a good learning environment, that's somebody that people are willing to learn from. So that's the posture that I try to take. I, but I am direct and blunt, you know what I mean? So, uh. Well, I think that authentically Detroit's listenership has at least as many white people as black people who are willing to hear and understand and really want to understand, you know, justice. That's huge. Um, and, I, you know, and, and, and you are a person, I really admire this about you, um, you have such um, an optimistic view of humans that you really think <laughs> that people want to do good in a lot of instances and the problem is sometimes they just don't know how and when you have that view then you sort of are willing to invest the time and effort to help you know move people there because a lot of times we'll sit back and we'll be in the same room watching them take over and leave and then we'll have our after conversation right and when you have that conversation there it's also a show of respect Mm -hmm. it's a show of self-respect but it's also a show of respecting the people there to be able to hear you and receive your message with integrity yeah but i I thank you for your courage i think that um from the time that i met you like i said you were kind of a surprise because i'm a a truth teller but i'm sitting here and i'd never been to life remodel so i didn't know what to expect honestly i was like all i'd heard was rumors i had listened to people i served on a panel where somebody was really just going in on how the durfee middle school was given and you know, all of the other stuff that was taken. And I remember my daughter said, have you ever been there? And I said, no. She said, maybe you should go there before you judge. I was like, whatever. But I went in, and a lot of stuff was happening, and then I met you. And it's been um, a, real, uh, a real treat to get to know you. Um, I just wish, honestly, that Marla was here to have this conversation and to really see you doing your thing. Um, But then I also say that Marlo is here in our hearts and in our spirits. Funny thing is we had the Stoudemire Wellness Hub and the logo is green and white. And somebody said, Cast Tech. And I was like, I didn't mean for it to be Cast Tech. And I said, yeah, but Marlo did. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah, yeah so, no doubt. So, DeJuan, how can people get involved with Black Leaders Detroit and, you know, give $52 a year and, you know, or pledge even more? Yes. So you can go to blackleadersdetroit.org and you can sign up. Click the donate button and you can sign up to donate a dollar a week. We have a $4.33 option per month. Or the $52 one-time donation, and then we'd call you back um, on the date that you signed up the following year to make sure you sign up again. But as Orlando mentioned there, we have another button. for people. That's my favorite button for people that are just like, you know what, $52 a year is not enough for me. I really want to make a generous donation. Uh, click that button and customize uh, your gift and become one of the members that's really looking to, to solve the problem. Like We want everybody to know that, that we view you as the hero. Right. Like mm. there, there are other people that uh, make announcements and like cut big checks. But um, we feel like the sacrifice that you make and sign up to donate a dollar a week um, is just as valuable. Uh, there's a, there's a, the, a, a, a um, proverb, a biblical proverb where um, Jesus was teaching and talked about the lady that that, that gave two denarii. Right. Uh, gave as much 
as or, or gave even more than the wealthy when they gave a lot, right? Because she had less to give from. Um, and I, that's the way we view it, and that's who we see as the heroes, the people that will sign up and donate a dollar a week. All right. Dewan yeah. Dandridge, president. Can I ask you a question real quickly? Can you give us an estimate or some sense of how much money you've generated through Black Leaders Detroit since you've been founded? So since April of last year, we've donated, and, and, and mind you, all of 2020, we operated with a volunteer team, a volunteer board, yeah. right? Um, I came on part-time in September, but in 2020, we gave away $218,700 to black businesses and nonprofits combined, right? Since we need, then, yeah, we need JG here for the applause. <laughs> I know, I know. Since, since then, we've done another $100,000. Um, we just did a couple $50,000 rounds where we gave $2,500 grants out to 20 organizations. Um, and we'll, we'll do, continue to do more of that before the year is out. Like our, we have a, a goal of giving away um, about $400,000 this year. So um, we're, we're on target to actually meet that goal. Wow. Oh, man. Wow. Well, you stay with it. And I have no doubt in my mind that you will accomplish that goal. Dewan Dandridge, president and CEO of Black Leaders Detroit. Thanks for coming back to us on the podcast. Yes, Thanks thank for you. having me. Yeah. No problem. Wow. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to a very special episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Mackinac Policy Conference on the beautiful Mackinac Island, powered by the Eastside Community Network in partnership with WDET and sponsored by the Ford Foundation, now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening. There is a fly like, I see it. trying to land on my face while I'm <laughs> delivering the intro. Thank, this is really authentic. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real. I will not be Vice President Pence in this interview. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I will not let a fly rest on me, right? Thank you for, for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so please be sure to turn on those notifications. Joining us today is Angelique Powers. Angelique is the new president CEO of the Skillman Foundation. Hey. Angelique, welcome to Authentically Detroit. What's up? I'm so excited. <laughs> this is like the biggest honor for me. Are oh. you serious? I really am oh, serious. Yes. You're, you're helping honored. Orlando and me understand more about ourselves because we're like, whoa, we're the honorees. We're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, people have been coming up to Donna and I all week saying, oh my God, we love, and we're like, really? I think the listener stats must be off Orlando. They I was are. talking Mm-mm. to, um, you know, the, the president and CEO of MCAN, um, Ryan, yeah. who's here today. And, um, I'm on the board, and I mentioned, yeah. you know, I have this podcast. He's all authentically Detroit. We listen to that. And I'm like, really? So it's, we heard. You yes. guys are huge. Let me just be a mirror right now and reflect for you. But, you know, and I said this to you, Orlando, but when I got here, the staff was like, we're going to give you the real deal. Here's everything that you need to know that you and authentically Detroit. They're like, download it. Listen to it. This will help you understand the landscape. And so obviously that's how people feel. Wow. Well, we, we, we are truly honored. And, you know, I think that, you know, Donna posted a photo of us yesterday with uh, Dr. Andre Perry on Facebook. And for, for Detroiters back home who are not able to have platform or able to be here, 
um, during the conference. Uh, there was so much pride that Authentically Detroit had the opportunity to come and interview folks and be in the media row at the Mackinac Policy Conference. And so shout out to everybody back home that's rooting for us. Uh, it's, 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 it's an amazing opportunity. So Angelique, once again, thank you. Uh, for joining us, uh, new presidency of the Skillman wow. Foundation. Um, how long have you been on the job in so far? A whole week and a half. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A whole week and a half. And yep. have you saved the world yet? Uh, that was yesterday, so <laughs> we're good. But, sh- but I'm sure you have a plan to save the world <laughs> by Friday. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, so I, I officially started a week and a half ago. I unofficially okay. started at the end of June. I moved here um, with my family end of July. And just, I wanted to, I know um, I had spoken with Tanya Allen, who is my predecessor. Mm -hmm. I had heard from a lot of folks about the great work that the staff was doing at Skillman. And I had had a chance to meet the board during the search process. So I was champing at the bit to get started. And I knew that there was so much happening that it wasn't the kind of job that you just show up on day one and say, like, let's get started. Yeah. Yeah, So unofficially since June. Yes. Well, you're new to the city and you're new to a lot of our listeners and in the community. Can you sort of introduce yourself? Where are you from? Where did you come from? And why Detroit? Um, well, I'm Angelique Power, and I am from Chicago, Southside, and um, I've lived in different places. You know, our family had a small cottage on the west side of Michigan when I was growing up. My mother was a public school teacher, and my father was a police officer, and so we would spend our summers in Michigan and a lot of our weekends here, too. Um, and we spent so much time here that actually my sister and I both went to University of Michigan. Go Blue. Uh, go Blue. Oh, wow. That's cool. And, um, and so I do feel like Michigan is a part of my being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Chicago is really where, and I lived in the Twin Cities. I worked for Target Corporation. And, you know, oh, wow. I, I've lived in different places. <laughs> that's so funny. And Tanya just went to the Twin I know. Cities. We switched places. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that for the last 20 plus years I've been in Chicago just working across sector with different communities Um, about eight years ago I started to go deep on anti-racism work Mm -hmm. and organizing and co-founded an organization called Enrich Chicago which is an anti-racism nonprofit and it does um, organizing work with nonprofits and with foundations that are really looking at themselves to see like how do we actually further issues that we claim to want to solve and so um, that's one piece of my work when I went to the field foundation that was a lot of the work that we did together Mm -hmm. I ran the field foundation for the last five years and we focused on racial justice we funded organizers and artists and media we funded for-profit black and brown media organizations that's nice that's good to hear which was cool and we funded individuals directly um so in particular black and brown organizers artists and journalists you better right yeah and we did unrestricted um awards because 
what we wanted to do was just kind of run up on people and give them money and like moonwalk away. That was the vision. Okay, want <laughs> <laughs> make sure we quote that. We like to run up on people and give them money and moonwalk away. That's 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 real. That's real. That's real thugged out. I like that. Because you know, in that you take away all of the red tape that happens in the foundation world. Where first of all, you have to know about it. You have to apply for it. Mm-hmm. You have to use the right language. You have to make promises that correlate mm-hmm. to what people inside of the foundation think you should do. And then you have to explain what you've done with all the money. And and the way that we felt is that the people who were doing the most important work were overworked and underpaid. Um, and so our job was mainly to earn trust and to protect communities from ourselves was actually part of our metrics. From philanthropy? Wow. I yes. am, I okay. am I literally am, I am, okay. sitting here what? about to give you a standing ovation. This is before COVID because people had to figure that out during well, no, COVID. You know what? Yeah. Wow. This, this was the last that, five years. It's really yeah. amazing. So I want to listen to you and I have some <laughs> real um, things to share with you. I mean, this is great. Yes. So yeah. go on. Oh, so, well, I don't want to talk too much, too. No, 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 no. no You're no, saying no. wonderful things. Yeah. Keep, okay. yeah. keep, okay. keep talking. Keep going. Um, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, I, I have spent time inside of the private sector and the nonprofit and the philanthropic sector. And I think during the, my work on myself around the anti-racism organizing, I started to wonder um, about the role philanthropy plays in particular. And... Um, wondered if foundations were able to change themselves if we would get closer to seeing the change that um, we claim we want to see. And so that has been a lot of the work. It's self-reflective. It's individual looking at, um, you know, looking at racism not as this abstract concept that's out in the world um, or even like just using it as... as um, Words, which is right Ooh, now, I on. feel like that's my lane. You know, language, you know, it's narrative. just language. It's just yes. decorative language. It's yes. just accessories that people are draping over themselves um, without actually understanding what it means and the work that it takes to do every day inside of yourself. The reason that I um, am in so many of the rooms that I'm in is because I have light skin, because I have I have language that makes me palatable to white people um, I can code switch very easily and so I am not confused I'm not confused um, that is that means that I have extra work to do that the rooms that I'm in I leave them changed beyond me when I leave you know it's so important that we all own our privilege mm-hmm. i always talk look at privilege as being on a continuum mm-hmm. yeah and um i can speak for myself i can even speak for black people who have spoken to me and shared some things with me but it's so important that we create frameworks for people to speak for themselves mm-hmm. because we have privilege and the challenge is when you even have good intentions controlling the narrative and controlling the process and controlling the solutions that I found um, foundations. Now there are a lot of foundations that have really moved back from that. And Mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge many foundations that have moved back from that. A lot of foundations for a period of time seemed like they had come up with, they would meet with researchers, come up with great ideas, decide this is the problem and then find out who wanted to get a grant to solve the problem they had to find. That's right. 
and it seems so backwards. Um, and so the opportunity for us to actually be on the ground, understanding that Detroit is 139 square miles, and each square mile is somewhat different than the other. Mm-hmm. Even on the east side, you can't say that the lower east side is all one thing, mm-hmm. and you can't say the city is all one thing. And so how do we, as community development corporations, find ways to push down, or not push down, but push into the grassroots, so the grassroots has the power to control what's happening inside of their neighborhoods on their blocks. And that's been a real struggle for Eastside Community Network. When Orlando Bailey was with us, um, that's one of the things that he was really pushing. Right. And it, it was a paradigm shift for us, right? Because Orlando had this great idea that the Kresge Foundation <laughs> should no longer fund organizations like us that <laughs> the, 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 the KIPP defunds. Um, what is it? I did it. He, I, it was me. He, it was him. <laughs> and it was not just him. But he was here he is working for ECN and telling the foundation that ECN should not be the recipient of the KIP D funds, that those innovation funds should go to smaller organizations. So when I first got my rejection letter, <laughs> I was like, you? <laughs> you did this, Orlando. <laughs> but it, it, it really did. It, I had to reeducate myself mm-hmm. as a community leader and understand it was not about me, that if my job was, to, that my job in my mind is to make the neighborhood organizations in my community stronger, to help those people who are in the community doing the work on the ground have the resources and knowledge and access they need to realize their dreams. Yes. And I think it but 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 we also had foundations that gave us the freedom yeah. to do that. Mm-hmm. And that means that we can't be real prescriptive in our work. Right? And that you can't be real prescriptive in your work if you're really going to help facilitate that. And so I'm overjoyed to hear. Mm-hmm. This position that the Skillman Foundation will be among a group of funders. Ford Foundation has been a real innovator in that Kresge Foundation. Again, Orlando convinced them to stop funding us for the innovating <laughs> <laughs> Ford in Detroit. But Kresge and Ford formed a cohort of operating support. They have. They for, have. Yes. They have given us plenty of money. Absolutely. And I am not complaining. It is absolutely right that we had to get out of the way of block clubs and neighborhood organizations and let those people lead and understand our role. And so we've been very fortunate to have foundations step up and support that role. And it's probably a bigger role than if we were doing the Kip D projects. It is. You know, being mm-hmm. a leader of leaders is so much more influential than being a leader of followers. And mm-hmm. that's really the transition our organization has had to make. And I think that Orlando and I were able to find like mind around that. I'm teasing him, but I actually mm-hmm. agree with him to find like mind around that. Um, and there's this growing movement among funders. And so, again, um, how do you see changing how Skillman is doing things? One thing that I started working at Warren Connor in 1993, my first grant that I got from Warren Connor was from the Skillman Foundation. Really? Yes. I had this idea. I wrote it up and Skillman said, hey, this looks kind of good and funded us, right? Mm. And we got a three-year grant. It was really cool. And in those days, you could easily go on the Skillman Foundation website, even when websites were not quite so fancy, and get a listing of everybody the Skillman Foundation funded. Mm. Now, you may or may not know, you have to pull a 990 to get yeah. that information. And so there's less transparency. Mm. It's less clear who gets what. And I'm wondering if you see yourself also leading change so that you have more uh, um, communication and accountability to the communities that you serve. And they can really say, 
here's how Skillman is doing things. Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, let me say that the reason that I even left Chicago, left field where I was, I was not going to leave for any old thing or any old organization. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of other opportunities um, that came my way. Skillman is a really important foundation and functions in an interesting space. And so um, I was honored to come and follow in Tanya Allen's and Carol Goss's uh, footsteps. Um, I think that all of the work, though, begins with a look inside. And so one of the things that we have already started to do with the program team is to talk about the grants. Where have they gone? And sort of mapping them um, in terms of race, in terms of size, in terms of neighborhood, um, that transparency, just so that we have a better sense of what we have been up to in the last few years. And I think that it's going to be a good news story, but like that's the transparency that we need to understand so that we can talk about it with other people. And then we can also map where we haven't been. Um, I also think that a look at operations when you talk about racial justice work, that means, you know, it, some of it is banal, to be quite honest with you. Mm. You know, it means showing up every day to look at every policy and every practice and ask yourself, like, where are the power lines? Where are, is the money going? Who's making the decisions? And our default in most spaces is to make plans and do them on our own. Um, but we want to, just like the process that you all went through, it's like the, the folks that are the recipients of the grant money should be the designers of the strategies and, and the metrics and the direction that it goes in. Mm. And so I think a part of what we really want to do is to check ourselves and be checked and say, like, are we doing this right? Like, could we do this better? We can't answer that question or else we'd say, like, oh, yeah, we're doing great. You know, so a big part of what I'm planning on doing for the next year is spending time talking to people. And I need you all to tell me, like, who I need to be talking to. <laughs> we love to do that. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> we love um, but I want to do that in particular. And I think what's really interesting about Detroit and one of the reasons why I wanted to come here is because this is a black city. And this is a young city, too. You know, mm -hmm. the median age in Detroit is 34. Yeah. And while the rest of the country is starting to think about equitable recovery and what does it look like to rebuild in a different way, Detroiters have been working on this for a long time. And so it's a city of builders. And yes. You Rick's talked a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry, Donna. Go on. You talked a little bit about your anti-racism work yes. um, in Chicago. And you also talked about how innovative uh, your grant making was, you know, in the past. Um, while also looking uh, intrinsically to figure out what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Have, how are you reconciling the culpability of philanthropy, the philanthropic sector, yeah. in how our neighborhoods are positioned currently, uh, disparately, um, especially you know in the city of Detroit, right? When we think about how the institutions have created and enforced policies that disadvantageously affect the black people in the city of Detroit, foundations included, how are you reconciling that with the vision that you want to be able to cast and move forward with mm -hmm. skill? I mean, that's part of the the rationale behind the metric for philanthropy being protect communities from ourselves, mm -hmm. and I never really mm. unpacked that to explain it, That's but so I want to explain it. Please. Please. Um, so 
often inside of philanthropy what you have is um, folks that are in the boardroom and even on the staff that approach the problems from an academic and and antiseptic way. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are the least proximate. They don't live in these neighborhoods. They've never experienced a lot of the issues that they're trying to fix. And they're coming up with theories of change and then, and you mentioned this, then sort of paying others to enact their theories. And if they, if the response is um, what the foundation thought the response would be, well, then there's more money attached to it. But if you come back with like, hey, that didn't actually work, then you could lose funding. And so the whole system is sort of set up to, um, to create a distrust of philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not a serious partner. They just want to, like, move money in certain ways. Um, so that's one thing that everyone who shepherds capital has a responsibility to actually understand that there is a fallacy of expertise in philanthropy. We are not the experts. Um, the experts are the visionaries that are actually doing the work. The other thing is that if you just move capital into different areas, there is no such thing as, like, neutral capital. And if you don't change policies that are designed to actually keep communities um, without recognizing their power but reliant on external capital. So if you don't change policies um, and if you don't change like the regularized source of funding, then what you do is you move long-time low-income black residents out of those neighborhoods um, or you end up creating a system of reliance. The opposite of this is to understand that no one is empowering anybody else. There is tremendous power in you communities. You better say that. Mm-hmm. Right? The power yes. is there. The power yes. is there. We're Come investing on. in it people's needs platform, yes. platform and, and, and agency. You're That's resourcing. Right. Yes, you're They're, resourcing. But let me, let me. you know, you, you, you raised so many good points. Oh, my And gosh. I want to um, just have a, a frank conversation yes, with you, right? Um in many people in the grassroots community, mm-hmm. there's a lot of anger at the Skillman Foundation related to school reform policy. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me more, because well, I don't the know. The formation of the Education Achievement Authority that was erected in partnership with former Governor Rick Snyder, okay. he of Flint Water, um, said we're going to take the bottom 5% of schools in Detroit, worst performing schools, and create a new authority to educate kids. There was this experimental education software called the Buzz Software. Um, I, I think it's just safe to say it. The experiment failed. Okay. And you had brand new schools that had been built by taxpayers transferred into this authority, like Mumford High School is one example, where you know a lot of people I know went to Mumford High School. It was a high school in my neighborhood when I was growing up, and Southeastern was another, but Mumford was brand mm-hmm. new, had never been occupied by a Detroit public school student moved into the EAA and you had this system and it failed. There was evidence that it failed. For a while there was complicity on part of some media to keep that information from people. And then there was the acknowledgement that it failed and then without taking a breath and without saying, you know what, we thought we were doing the right thing and we made a mistake. Mm -hmm. They were sort of like, okay, here's not what we're going to do. And I think for me, um, I can promise you that in my 30-plus years of professional experience, I've made mistakes. I oh, yeah. thought I was doing something right, and oops, that was wrong. There's things I've done that I regret. The whole question is of accountability and humility, mm. because as a grantee, 
if I failed to accomplish something, would I just be able to say my bad and mm -hmm. keep going? Or is that something that power and money gives you the privilege to do? Mm -hmm. And so as you come into this community, we are excited, thrilled to hear from you. I trust and believe, but I know there are people who I work with in the grassroots community who very much are going to have that question yeah. about is is there ever going to be an acknowledgement? There were emails. And here's another thing. When we had the school board, we had an elected school board. We had emergency management, which is the removal of democracy. And there were emails coming from people who work from Skillman really complaining that people might get their vote back. And those emails are popularly shared on social media. And again, there's no apology for any of that. And it's not that people will not forgive somebody who makes a mistake and is sorry. Mm -hmm. But the question is, how do we know that when you are changing policy, policy changes are not policy changes that strip us of any of, of our power, of our, what well, we believe, I mean, grade school, you're told one man, one vote, democracy means something, this is the difference, this is what differentiates us from other countries. And then you find out that you don't have any democratic power at all. In Detroit, Flint, and most other cities in the state of Michigan, black majority black cities, black people's voting rights, their democracy was suspended for a period of time under emergency management. Wow. And there was this perception or reality that the Skillman Foundation was complicit in that in Detroit. Um, will you allow me to research this? Because I haven't, I don't know anything about it, mm -hmm. and this is the first time that I've heard of it, and thank you for telling me about it. And will you let me come back and talk to you we would love about to have this? You back. Because I do think that, you know, the first thing that I would say is that failure um, is natural, right? Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where if you're going to go big and you're going to try to unlock equity in a huge way, uh, you're going to fail several times. And like, absolutely, we have to have some grace for each of us Absolutely. in this. Um, the second thing I'll say is that policy that is created from the ground up um, is always stronger policy. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and the third thing that I'll say right now without even knowing anything about it is um, on behalf of Skillman, I'm sorry. Just, just for any sort of confusion or feeling that there is no communication or no acknowledgement. Um, that's easy to say, you know? That is easy to say, and it sounds like it's warranted. But let me also get smarter about what happened and then come back so that we can continue the conversation. Absolutely. And I, this is not meant to in any way, um, you know, be any shocking thing. It is the kind of thing, though, that I think impedes trust. So I hear a lot of people in my social media timelines and in my stuff really criticizing foundations in general, not just Skillman, but foundations and philanthropy. And then sometimes I say nonprofits are complicit in all of this. And yeah. so sometimes they're talking about ECN. I'll be real straight, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not just mm -hmm. Skillman. Sometimes they're talking about our organization and other organizations where there's this perception that people who have had certain types of privilege have misused that privilege. Well, and 
have that's done things that's to harm true. us. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> that's not just a perception, you know, yeah. that's an earned reality. Yeah. And um, and I know this, you know, like we we funded organizers in Chicago and we were friends with organizers and direct actions that were happening. Often we were part of, you know, running direct actions. And so I know the the um, hypocrisy that there is can be found in philanthropy. Um, I know the vitriol against the nonprofit industrial complex. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you named it. You know, and yeah. so and all of that is real. Um, I consider myself an organizer. I consider myself an organizer in philanthropy. And so mm. I think that it's really important to listen and to acknowledge um, and to figure it out collectively. So that's a part of it. You know, I, I, there's part of me that's like, how can I come into Detroit where Detroiters like will give you a side eye and be like, you're not from not all well, Detroiters. Not, not all Detroiters. Not all Detroiters. Yeah. In fact, wanna, not most Detroiters. You don't think we're, so? We're very welcoming yes. here. We're, think, we're very welcoming. Think, and especially with how you are choosing to enter. Um, I think that, you know, the side eyes won't be as uh, popular. I want to switch gears <laughs> yeah, for a minute. Can I just we say have real about quickly, though, about that? People are really excited about you being and, here. And Your reputation so nice. precedes it you. Does. And so when I told people we were sitting down, they like, Angelique Powers, oh, my goodness. People have really wanted to meet you. I think that you are going to be loved in this mm. community because of your reputation, also because of everything you just said. Mm. It's empowering just hearing you say, this is how I want to use my role at the Skillman Foundation to help, you know, empower people. That's yeah. really... I, I want to switch gears for a minute. We got about three minutes left. Okay. And uh, some news, uh, uh, Skillman Foundation... Uh, conducted a poll through Lake Research Partners. Um, oh yeah, this about cool. uh, you know Michiganders being willing to pay. Yeah. Uh, for edu- t- t- okay, yeah. tell tell us what's going on yes. and how that happened. So, you know, the coolest thing, and I know we have three minutes, so I'm going to make this super fast. But the coolest thing about this poll is that we have, for the last 18 months, all of us have witnessed. Uh, the collective trauma that this time has imposed, not just on our children and youth, but on ourselves. Um, and so during the summer, Skillman linked arms with Michigan's children, as well as Lake Partners Research, which is a national mm-hmm. um, research uh, public opinion poll, just to find out like what do Michiganders in rural and urban, across racial and ethnic lines, across parties, what do they think are the most important things? And and are they willing to put their money where their mouth is if there is an interest in investing in children? And the results were pretty shocking. And so 62% of Michiganders said that we need to invest in children in their mental health, in training programs, in wraparound services, in supporting teachers, um, a, a slew of things. And they said they would be willing to have an increase in their taxes to support it. Wow. Mm. And so... That, to me, is just pretty surprising. It's also laying the groundwork for some sort of policy advocacy or change. Yes. So this type of information then gets handed to folks that are working on advocacy, and they can run with it. And there's a millage campaign right now, right, for Wayne County to have a youth development or youth services millage? 
There, um, there was a millage in the past that did not make it to the ballot. And so I don't think that there's quite a direct line plan to take this information and turn it into a millage yet. But there is an organization called Launch Michigan. Are you familiar with Launch? Um. Which is like parents and administrators and civic leaders and business folks. They've been meeting for like three years. They mm -hmm. met a couple weeks ago. And they're really um, trying to put together a community design plan, which I think is really what right. a lot of this research will help to underpin. I'm well. on the board of New Detroit. And New Detroit has um, formally adopted, I believe, Launch Michigan as one of our advocacy under Tommy oh, Stallworth's leadership. So I think that we are um, in line to support that. And your, your, your research is really helpful. And we cannot wait to have you back on, especially yeah. for we, the show is an entire hour. So back in Detroit, uh, we'll work to get you back on and uh, talk some I more. I would love to come back. It would be amazing. We're out of time. So the president, so CEO of the it Skillman really Foundation, Angelique Power, thank you for joining us on yes. Authentically Detroit. And thank, thank you, you for coming to Detroit and yeah. um, stepping up to lead the Skillman Foundation. This is going to be great for our city. Well, thank you both. And for our young people because you are the preeminent um, youth serving foundation. People look to Skillman to say, how do we invest in young people? And so I really do believe that your thinking is right um, for the times that we are in right now. Well, and I believe young people will let us know. <laughs> <They do. laughs> Thank you, Angelique. Thank you. <laughs>